0: Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your God. Hello Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am your Dungeon Master and host, Ryan Howard, and today it is my distinct pleasure to have the creative director of Frog God Games, one Mr. Matt Finch, on the show. This interview's been a long time coming. As you guys who've been listening for a long time know, I've kind of been making my way through the, uh, the Frog God Games circle, and, you know, having Matt on the show was just another another great step in you know, talking to those those guys about all the great content they create. Uh, we actually had a great conversation around the OSR movement. I learned a lot about that movement uh, because, as we discussed in the episode, it's something that had largely not disappeared because it's still very much a thing, but it was not as prevalent when I started gaming because when I started gaming, 5th edition was a thing, and 5th edition kind of incorporated a lot of the, uh, the old-school elements that the OSR movement was trying to bring back. But we had a great conversation about that. We talked a lot about uh, swords and wizardry and uh, had a little uh, conversation about cons at the end. Before we jump into that, though, uh, one thing I wanted to get into briefly. uh, Firstly, just wanted to apologize for the lateness of this episode. My family was kind enough to uh, actually come to Nashville and and visit my wife and I, and uh, we had a great weekend. We were hanging out all day today, so that's why this episode is going up in the evening instead of in the morning. Not too big a deal for most of you, I'm sure, but just, just letting you know what was happening there and why this episode's coming out a little bit later than usual. The other thing I wanted to talk about is um, at the end of the episode, I kind of mentioned some of the things that I'll be talking about in the next episode. I don't have guests booked for the end of March, largely due to me not being able to secure guests for the end of March. Sometimes you have a bunch of people who are willing to come on the show. Sometimes, you know, it's it's not as many. And I'm, I'm going to take the opportunity next week to dive headfirst into virtual gaming because at that point, I will have done a little bit more virtual gaming, because due to the circumstances that we now find ourselves living in, a lot of gatherings are not happening anymore. I, for one, wanted to continue gaming in person, you know, as long as everyone was feeling healthy, I didn't see any reason to stop, but a lot of my group members are concerned and, uh, you know, wanting to kind of look after their health and and stay in their homes and, and, you know, isolate themselves at this point just because of what's going on. And so rather than, you know, putting my fist down and saying, no, we're going to meet in person and you're going to like it, I, I'm willing to, you know, stay at home and play virtually if that's what's going to make them feel better. And that's what's going to, you know, can allow us to continue playing. Because ultimately what I want to do is play D&D and virtual D&D is better than no D&D. The problem as you know, I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard me talk about on the show before is that I don't like virtual D&D. Not, not as much as in-person D&D. And there's a multitude of reasons for that, but I am going to get into those reasons in depth next week and hopefully be able to walk through with you guys the, the ways in which you as a player and you as a DM can mitigate some of the problems of virtual gaming because it's very easy to be distracted and very easy to not pay attention and very easy to get bored when doing virtual D&D and so in a lot of ways you have to change the way you play the game and so once I have a couple sessions under my belt uh, which will be next week I, I'm really hoping that I'll be able to uh, to to do that for you. And I'm probably also going to throw in a product review. I've got multiple products that still need to be reviewed uh, that I've had for some time now, including uh, Ghost of Saltmarsh, which I know I'm late to the party on that, but I got it for Christmas. Savage World Adventurers Edition, which I want to review before Shane comes on again to talk about the new Deadlands for Suede. And then, of course, a book that we talk about a little bit today, The Tome of Adventure Design. By frog god games which is a resource for designing adventures and dungeons and other aspects of your campaign at some point throughout you know the rest of the month and into april i will be reviewing all three of these products uh, but next week's episode i'm going to devote entirely to talking about virtual D&D. I'm saying this now because at the end of the episode, I mentioned doing a product review. Since then, with, you know, the nature of my games having changed over the course of this week, I've decided to call an audible on that. And I record this intro after I record the interview each week, just for a little added, uh, confusion on your end, but I just wanted to clear that up before we jump in. So, uh, with that out of the way, that's really all I had to talk about. I haven't been able to play d d the past couple weeks, as we've kind of seen, you know, where things are going, and, you know, there have been a couple life events that have kept, uh, kept games from happening. Uh, so yeah, we will, uh, You know, I I don't really have any additional stories or anything else to talk about right now, so uh, yeah, without further ado, let's jump right into our interview with Matt Finch of Frog God Games. I hope you all enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. All right, boneheads, let's give it up for the creative director of Frog God Games. The creator of Swords and Wizardry, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Matt Finch. Hey, everyone. Yes, we are working our way through the Frog God Games staff. Eventually, we'll be talking to the, uh, the janitor and uh, the IT department and just everyone else. So, Matt, how are you doing tonight?
1: Doing well. We're uh, just coming off the Swords and Wizardry Kickstarter, and uh, so, um, you know, getting started on the new products. We're going to start a uh an indiegogo in a couple of days we've got a kickstarter running for the midterlands um everything's pretty much you know underperforming right now with the coronavirus thing going though so that's um looking like things are going to be a little bit rough there
0: yeah i'm i'm hoping that this will all kind of end soon uh but for the duration Roland bones is is here for all of you who need a little distraction from it so Matt, we are going to start this episode the same way we start every episode. I like to ask everyone these same questions. So let's start with kind of the obvious one. How did you get into RPGs?
1: Okay. uh, 1978. uh, Started with the Holmes Basic set. uh, Grabbed a copy of the Player's Handbook. uh, Got a Monster Manual next. And then when they finally came out with the DM Guide, we had to wait about a year for that to come out. Um,. We uh, got a DM guide, and then we were off and running playing Advanced D&D. Uh,
0: off the top of your head, do you know what your Gygax number is?
1: I do not. Uh, well, wait. This is, this is like the Degrees of Separation? Yes. It's one. I've never met him, but I know about a billion people who have.
0: Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah, mine is like... 70,000 or something like that <laughs> it's what happens when you play with the same people for the entirety of your uh, your gaming career uh, i think
1: you go to one convention you you know move your number up to one pretty much
0: mm-hmm. absolutely <laughs> of all the games that you've played over all the years uh, what's your favorite game either to run or to gm
1: uh original d
0: do you remember your first character No. Gotcha. What's the first character that you have, like, uh, really solid memories of?
1: A wizard called Skyrask, who uh, we played until up to, like, 30th level because we were middle schoolers and cheating like anything.
0: As GMs, uh, a lot of times we kind of rely on familiar tricks, and some of us even have NPCs that will show up in every single game. So, Matt, do you have a forever NPC?
1: I have one that shows up very occasionally called Salamander, who's a, a fire magic user that that occasionally makes appearances here and there.
0: Is that kind of the the players messed up, or is that the players need to be bailed out?
1: Usually, the players need to be bailed out.
0: I find that oftentimes with with forever NPCs, it's it's one or the other.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he started out just because we had a group that didn't have enough people in it, and so I threw in. Uh, they didn't have a magic user. I threw in a magic user, but then you know he was just kind of so much fun that he kept showing up later and again. You know.
0: So how would you describe your play style as a, as a GM and then uh, as a player as well?
1: Well, as a player, I'm the guy who pushes buttons, <laughs> 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 which really kind of says it all. Um, as a GM play style, I don't know. It's uh, uh, You mean like sort of theater of their mind as opposed to miniatures or...
0: Just uh like what's your general philosophy when it comes to running a game?
1: Chaos. Yeah, no, I mean if you can if you've got a bunch of players who are doing, you know, a whole bunch of different things at once and everybody's super excited and you know, chaos that's the best of fun.
0: So, over years of playing RPGs, tons of memories can can just form at the table, some of them absolutely amazing. So, if you can, what is your fondest RPG memory?
1: I think it might be when we had uh a group of about 11 people and uh well there's two of them with actually the oldest one is just a situation where we had only two uh surviving characters one of whom was unconscious and the other one was running out of the dungeon with the unconscious character over their shoulder and we were actually mapping movement rates to see you know whether the monster that was behind him was going to catch up or not and the other one is uh uh, is also running away from a monster, come to think of it. It's uh, a, a party of about 11 people at one of the North Texas RPG cons. Um, it was actually the one where um, Rob Koontz complained about me, my group making too much noise. <laughs> um, uh, they were... Um, they had found this enormous wheel of gold worth 50,000 gold pieces, and um, so they were rolling it out, but they, they stole it from a toad dragon that was just a you know, monster that I made up. And so they're rolling this wheel of gold through the dungeon as fast as they can with the toad dragon coming behind them, um, and they reach the room that's going to get them out because you know, there's an elevator there. And they realized that there's – in the elevator, there's only enough room for three characters and the Wheel of Gold and all the rest of the – and so eight people – we're going to draw straws here. Eight people are going to be down there fighting the Toad Dragon. (laughs) Only three people are going to be able to get up with the the Wheel of Gold. So that was – pretty hilarious thing but just running we rolling the gold wheel as fast as they possibly could with this (laughs) thing hopping along after them was uh, that was a lot of fun to do
0: we share the table with all kinds of people when we play rpgs and some of them you know become our best friends and and you know we have those great memories that we associate with them some of them we just don't click with though and the worst of those people we kind of have this this term reserved for them called that guy so yeah. Matt, what's your your best or worst that guy story?
1: Well, I'll say that it did annoy me when Rob Kuntz asked my players to pipe down, and we didn't. So he moved his whole game out into the hotel lobby. That was annoying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's eleven players, Rob. What what are you doing?
1: Yeah, I mean it's gonna it's gonna make a certain amount. Well, he complained to the convention that we were making too much noise and having too much fun. <laughs>
0: Were were those his exact words, too much
1: fun? Those were his exact words. I went back and checked with the guy, and that's the reason why they were just sort of like, you know what, we're not doing anything about it.
0: (laughs) There are certainly some unusual things that come out of the mouths of RPG players, but someone pointing at a table and going, those people are having too much fun. That's that's a new one.
1: Yeah. Well, Rob takes his D&D very seriously, Mm -hmm. um, which I think must have been what was in his head when he said that. I'm sure he didn't mean it like it came out, but it came out <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and they were just like, well, Rob, if you want to move, there's the lobby.
0: <laughs> so, this last question, Matt, uh, can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. If you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be?
1: Wow, that can also lead to a complete creative block with that question. Anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to imagine the hell out of it go for it that's my answer i'd put imagine the hell out of it on nice that's (laughs) i'd wear
0: it cool so moving into some of the stuff that that you know you that's specific to you uh this is something that actually just came up today because vintage rpg podcast just did an episode on bunnies and Mm burrows and mentioned that you guys now produce content for it how did that come about and i guess why did that come about
1: well, um, the, the, the guy, there, there are two folks behind bunnies and burrows. The, the connection that we've got is with, um, Dennis Sister, mm-hmm. um, who the older gamers in the crowd will recognize the spell chariot of, of Sistar. They changed the name a little bit for it, but he's the guy that, in, that wrote the, uh, uh, the original Dungeons and Dragons Druid, which is of course the forefather of all the Druid class thereafter. Um, and so Dr. Sistere, uh is, is good friends with everybody in the company. We see him every year at a couple of conventions. Um, and so uh, he he, uh, he actually, I think, asked us if we wanted to publish it. It could have been the other way around, but I, since it's kind of outside the stuff that we normally do, I think it was probably him. Um, and, you know, that's a, a longstanding, cool game. And, uh, and so we were like, yeah, let's go ahead and publish it.
0: Yeah, because one thing that I, I have noticed about kind of the, the output of Frog God games, you guys are, are very much into the, the preservation of the original kind of class of RPGs that, that first came out. And to see that property from all the way back in the very early days of, of gaming still being supported and still having new content released for it is is very cool, honestly.
1: Yeah, I mean, we definitely do try and do that. Um, e- either, you know, protecting the, you know, just keep keeping stuff alive or um, also r- just reinterpreting, um, you know, we've got a, a large fifth edition line, but the approach that we take to that is still very much, okay, There, there is a particular style of play um, that was used, you know, generally earlier than the more rules-intensive games, and we try and make... Games, you know, even when the system is more rule intensive, we try and make it playable using um, some of those older methods, you know, like whether it be theater of the mind type gaming or whether it be, um, you know, an an open ended approach to the thing where you're not so much looking at your character sheet as you are trying to work out puzzles um, or deal with problems using your mind rather than a, a set Of numbers on the character sheet um, that's the way that we approach things I think that's I, I agree that's pretty characteristic of the company yeah
0: so let's take things all the way back I know everyone who gets into creating RPGs does so because at one point it was a necessity for you know having something to run for your players at what point did you realize that this was something you wanted to do professionally
1: well, I, I've got kind of a weird vector on that one because when I wrote um, Osric and then Swords and Wizardry, that was really not actually because my players needed something. It was because the there was no way for the community in general to publish something using those older rule sets, and so I went in via the uh, the Open Game License and the SRD, and just you know, again, being an attorney, we were able to create um, stuff that was, um, you know, legally clean for use as an SRD for older properties. So that kind of got me. So, so doing that thing, which was not creative except for legally got me into the point where a whole lot of people knew who I was, considered me to be an author, even though that wasn't really correct. All I did was rewrite stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and then for swords and wizardry, um, you know, again, kind of as, uh, in a supporting role, I wrote some stuff for that and then just kind of fell into the place where I was publishing and writing and so on. It wa- There there was no real point where I made a decision to definitely do that, which I think is unusual. I think a lot of people say, okay, I'm going to do this. They do, you know, the work, they, you know, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, they, you know, put in their time and they end up in that um industry, and I sort of ended up there by accident.
0: And so so it was purely just from you trying to, to have a way to legally publish uh, essentially content for 1E? Yeah.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what Osric was. It was a rewrite of uh, the first edition rules using the SRD so that people could tap into it using the open game license, uh, and Swords and Wizardry is the same thing, only with original Dungeons and Dragons. Um, the complete Swords and Wizardry is the... Uh, is everything up to the point when they switched over in 1978 to starting to support uh, advanced Dungeons & Dragons rather than than original? And so it's that full sort of body of uh, of gaming material is included in Complete Swords and Wizardry, and uh, yeah, I mean it was it was really. Um, I mean I guess it was sort of because I thought I might like to write something but mainly it was because a lot of the people in the old school community they were writing stuff and it was filled with copyright violations trademark violations and it was you know the fear was that the communities that we were hanging out with in the sort of old school gaming stuff uh, we're really just going to turn into a sort of, you know, pirate communities where, you know, nobody really took seriously any of the things that were coming out of it. Um, and so it was it was just sort of trying to push things in the right direction. And, uh, and it, as it turned out, it was a really strong push. But, you know, we didn't know that at the time.
0: Now, digging into the specifics around kind of swords and wizardry, um, leaving aside the aspect of kind of historical preservation, what is it about that original Dungeons and Dragons rule set that that you think people will be interested
1: in? Well, I think the first thing, um, which is maybe not the most important thing, but it is the first thing, um, is that it's very rules light, so it's very easy to pick up what's going on. Um, and there's, you know, you you're not a, a whole lot of people are, you know, starting RPGs for the first time are really intimidated by a large, you know, book of rules. Hi, read, you know, this these five hundred pages, and then we can start. you know, mm-hmm. um, which you know, the the closer you get to OD and D, um, you know, generally the the closer you are to something that's easy to start. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number two um, is that it is very very hackable. It's very easy to. Ah, uh, put into place house rules and use them in a way that it's not going to break every other part of the system that you're playing with. Um, so it's really easy if you you know if you want to play a Conan type of D and D, you know, fine. Think up a couple of house rules, throw them in there. Nothing's going to break. You want to play, um, you know, sort of high fantasy kind of thing, you know, easy. You know, it's you, you can just make out of it uh, whatever you want to a lot more easily than you can with a lot of the uh, the later systems. Um, fifth edition is not as good. Gu- when I say later systems, fifth edition is less guilty than the ones that I'm talking about. I'm really kind of, the, the real problem period there was uh, third and fourth edition with the, the extreme rules heaviness. And fifth has definitely taken a step back. I mean, they actually hired some of the people who were really prominent in the old school renaissance to to help them do that so
0: now you've mentioned that term already old school renaissance this is something that a lot of people have talked about on the show and just kind of in in general in rpgs recently what does that term or what does that movement mean to you
1: well it's almost getting to be an outdated term because it's gotten so large that it has splinter groups that are easily larger than what the OSR was when we first started out, mm-hmm. but um, I, I think it means to, to me it's just the community of people who play uh, older editions of the games, um, and in many cases with you know brand new material that may have been created recently. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know there are a lot of people who view it more as being a label for publishers um, who are coming out with stuff that works with the older editions um there's the you know a group of people who think it's that it's those who are playing with the old rule books as opposed to with a retro clone or um uh you know so the so that group of people would say for example that dcc is you know not osr um and so there's uh there's a bunch of different kind of groups inside what is really more of an umbrella term at this point than anything else
0: yeah and this The OSR movement, uh, community, that kind of stuff, it's something that I find very interesting being someone who came in basically at the same time that 5th edition happened. Mm -hmm. Because from everything that I've gathered now, it seems that uh, the OSR movement, like you already said, stems from kind of the – frustrations with uh, 3.5 and, yes. and 4e and pathfinder as well and kind of a desire for mo- more open game whereas i came in with fifth edition which is extremely open like right now i'm running dark sun in fifth edition mm-hmm. it's interesting to to see kind of the fruits of something that was built before i came in and now is something completely different
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's accurate. Yeah, I mean, that's accurate. It's mm-hmm. gone. It's gone through a bunch of phases. I mean, there was one phase in there that was like, you know, super dogmatic, and it was, you know, we just had sort of hit a point where everyone seemed to be agreeing on everything, and anybody who uh, disagreed with that was a heretic. And then, uh, you know, it got over that in about six months, and uh, you know, it's just there. Are, there are sort of fashions in the whole thing, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons that I. You know, kind of have trouble seeing it as uh, as really a unified movement. I see it as you know a, a bunch of people who are in a bunch of groups that have. So, somebody once described it to me as a syndrome rather than a disease. And the difference between a syndrome and a, and a disease, as I understand it, is that a disease has one set of you know symptoms, causes, so on and so forth. Where as a symptom, you're going to have certain a certain number of the different symptoms that are in that in a larger group but not necessarily all of them so you can have people with a syndrome that are similar but not experiencing exactly the same thing and i've you know heard heard the osr sort of described more of a, as a syndrome that way yet
0: yeah, it, it reminds me and you know it's a lot of the same people who are are into musical scenes that that oftentimes end up in gaming there's a lot of crossover there but it reminds me a lot of punk
1: rock the more that i hear about it oh yeah i mean everybody made that um made that comparison from very early on because the first thing that happened after um and to a certain degree before um when we came out with the retro clones um you know Ozark and swords and wizardry um there was a, an explosion of diy publishing that happened where people were just you know i'm there i'm gonna do my dungeon uh, i can't draw but here's a couple of drawings for you i'm a bad cartographer but here's what the map looks like um and and there was some just startlingly good stuff that that came out that way um Mm -hmm. and 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 everyone was like okay this is this is basically what's happening here is is a punk aesthetic Mm -hmm. behind this and so yeah i mean you're you're there are many, many people have, have remarked on that.
0: And the cool thing about the the time that we're in now is you can have something that's DIY, uh, but a lot of people can see it now just because of the, the marvels of the internet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, uh, PDFs, um, and the the other thing that really sparked that off was uh, Lulu.com, I think, was really the first generally available print-on-demand publisher. Um, and uh, and, and the, the ability to do print-on-demand was something that really, sparked things off there too because i mean we're talking about you know 2004 i mean forum (laughs) software was some really cool new stuff that was going on there because it was bulletin board services before that (laughs) um and so yeah when with print on demand came out and people could not only create a pdf but you know you could actually get a printed copy of something that someone had done that was really cool and now
0: print-on-demand is so kind of prevalent and, and good quality that, that you can get really good-looking books that are print-on-demand.
1: Yeah, I mean, it used to be that publishers wouldn't do it because the, the quality was so low. Um, but now, um, you know, I, I, most of the publishers that I know of do at least some of their books in POD. And especially it's getting useful now that um, shipping rates are so high. That, you know, people can print off stuff, you know, in their own country without something having to go across the borders and pay, you know, customs and, you know, just really high postage fees.
0: So – Kind of getting back into the uh, the the old school Renaissance type of stuff, not necessarily the movement, but the actual old school rules. When you sit down with someone who's used to kind of the the crunchier type systems, what are some of the habits or or ways of thinking about the game that you have to break that player of in order for them to kind of begin to enjoy and understand the the game that you'd be running for them?
1: Uh, well, I mean, it, the the technique differs by person, but what you're trying usually to get across is the idea of, you know, look, when you have something that you're trying to solve, you know, whether it be, you know, a a wall or something like that, um, don't look at your character sheet to see what's on your character sheet because that's not going to help you. You, you know what you want to do is is to be looking up and thinking rather than looking down at the sheet of paper and that's you know one of the, the key things I look for to see whether there's somebody who might not be understanding exactly what we're doing here because it's usually a convention games so, you know is it's going to be it's the person who's looking down at their character sheet trying to find something that they would use as if it's um, you know, little pieces that you would play as opposed to just thinking, you know, what would you do? What do you do?
0: And what kind of mindset does a GM who's so used to, to those crunchier systems have to prepare themselves for if they say pick up the, the swords and wizardry box set and want to run that for their players?
1: Sure, and that's probably the person that it's hardest for unless they've played that kind of game before because if you um you know whatever 'cause you know whatever role playing game it is that you play first kind of sticks in your head as being the pattern for <laughs> for the way that that all the other ones are played um and some people are better or worse at breaking out of that i mean i'm always you know filled with admiration for these people who play 20 different games um (laughs) because their ability to flip from one rule system to another isn't something i do all that easily um but um for a, a dm that wants to play an old school game i think that it um I don't know. Um, you've got because what you have to do is you have to shed the idea that fewer rules mean incomplete. You you have to just sort of wrap your head around the idea that that this is not an incomplete game. That you're going to have situations arise where you're going to have to come up with a probability. I mean, maybe the best thing to do would be to think of a uh, you know pick some situation that you've seen before in the past uh, and the way it was the the way it was played through and try and think about, you know, are there other dice rolls that I could have used here? Is there anywhere here where I didn't even need to use dice rolls? And, you know, just sort of think through it. Um, but it's it's hard. I mean, it's um, I, I think that a lot of this stuff catches all at once. It's like a light bulb going on. And that's kind of hard to do if you're the DM and you're doing it in advance by yourself without anybody to play off of. To kind of give you that kind of inspiration i wrote a uh, little pamphlet called the uh, quick primer for old school gaming uh, which tried to cover that question of how do you learn an old school game when you started out playing with a game that has more rules to it because it's really hard to make that step backward if you learned with a set of rules that are really simple it's really easy to understand okay let's add more rules but it's way way harder to figure out how to play a game when what you're doing is subtracting rules.
0: Yeah, I feel like in in crunchier systems, the the role of the GM is more of like a almost more of a referee role than than anything else because you're you're constantly going back to the rule books and okay, did does this violate this or this or that and Whereas with a, a, a lighter system, at that point, you're less of a referee and more of a judge having to make rulings on on individual things as they happen and decide basically how the, the game is going to flow at your table.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, um, you're, you're way deeper into the guts of the situation or of the fantasy or whatever it is, because you're the one making it work. You're not really referring to a book that's telling you, how to do it you know you're you're much more interacting in a a, in a deeper level with with the the story that you're creating
0: now not necessarily my understanding because from what i'm about to say it it probably will seem like i don't understand how how gaming was in the early days but my my reading of the history of d and d is that well it comes out of war gaming so in my mind those early D and d sessions were very very much like war games very tactical and very combat focused but it seems like a lot of this old school return is very focused on storytelling w- were a lot of your early sessions more story driven the ones
1: okay. There's different generations in D&D. I'm in the yes. generation where um, we were sitting in the back of English class and we're playing D&D with no dice. <laughs> <laughs> and we're just doing it real quietly, sometimes passing notes. Um, you get really good at you know evolving a story when that's the way that you got to play. But I think you're right. It was originally um, you know much more uh, tactical wargaming-based. Um, but the thing is that when you're um, playing that way whether you're doing it with figures or not what you're tracing out of that you it it means you're you're not beginning it with a backstory at all all of the story that you're creating is something that emerges entirely from the playing of it and so Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that a lot of the old school um, people mean when they talk about story is they're talking about that emergent story that, that comes out of the game. You wait and you find out what the story is going to be. You don't have a DM that is trying to uh, work the characters into um, any particular storyline that's defined by the DM. Mm. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of um, approach on the sandbox sort of gaming because uh, sandbox is where you've got the biggest capability uh, to have some totally wild story emerge out of playing through it because you have no idea what it is that the players are going to do. They mm-hmm. go off somewhere chasing a squirrel, and you end up you know, with this phenomenal story you know, by the end of it, whereas usually if people are trying to follow a story that you, the DM, have kind of prepared for them to walk through, they're certainly not going to rise anywhere higher than the story that you had in mind. You know, it, 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 you know, unless they manage to take it all the way off the rails, which, of course, most groups will almost immediately try and do in some way, shape, or form. Yep. So.
0: yep. I – and it probably has to do with my personality. I – when I first started DMing, I had very railroad tendencies. And my group that I run for on Saturdays very recently broke me of that because they decided that uh, they did not like the railroad and they were going to do whatever and so i i basically had to go okay we're we're going to go off the tracks and just had to break myself of Setting up the story of of what they were working towards, and let them kind of just play with the the world that I had for them. And that's what been one of my biggest lessons as a GM in in recent days is getting getting away from those getting away from those railroad tracks.
1: Yep, and that that tells you also why, for example, in the in in the old school stuff, people um, love books of tables. Because it requires an entirely different setup when what you're going to do is, you know, are you seriously going to, you know, let these four people just go off in a fantasy world and do whatever it is and you're going to cope with that and stay ahead of it and (laughs) tell them what happens and referee the whole situation all as it goes and the answer is yup. I need a book of tables. <laughs> mm-hmm. I need a couple of NPCs that I can throw in wherever I need them. I can need a couple of encounters that I can throw in when I need them. It's an entirely different kind of preparation for things, you know? Absolutely. Which
0: leads me to uh, discussing a book that I actually own. Uh, it's, it's the first Frog God uh, product that I purchased, mm-hmm. and that is the Tome of Adventure Design. So real quick, uh, just give a general overview of, of that product for the audience.
1: Okay, well, it's a, uh, it, it is technically a book of tables. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, first of all, it's, it's intended for before you go and sit down at the gaming table. It's not something that will work um, on the fly very rapidly. It can be used that way. But the, the intention of it was to, um, to create a, a sort of a deeper design tool for when you were working on something ahead of time. Um, there are some heuristic pathways through some of the tables, um, uh, the monsters in particular. But the idea is that, you know, you, you boost your creativity in general by uh, superimposing a whole bunch of ideas at once. And um, so a lot of the tables have many, many columns to them. Um, it's, uh, and it goes in a relatively logical progression, you know, starting with the location um, than if you want to define um, the adventure you're designing in terms of a mission, um, just different different approaches to it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a book of design tables that run a little bit deeper than the, uh, than the average book of tables because mm-hmm. you've, you've really got to decide ahead of time, most books of tables are designed to work um, pretty much perfectly every time you roll on it. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that though, it means you have to leave out a lot of possibilities because anything that might contradict any other column in your table um, is going to be something that you're going to have to cut out. So it takes out a lot of the, the creative scope on the table. Um, or you've got the type of tables that are in Tome of Adventure Design where um, you know there is a lot broader scope, but some mm-hmm. of your results are either going to be terrible um, or they might – you know, sometimes the terrible results – actually spark some of the best results because you look at it and you're like oh wow i can do something really weird with this mm-hmm. so so that's that's what that is it was something it was just the tables that i'd put together over you know 20 30 years of gaming and i had to finish them all because most of them were about three quarters done mm-hmm. so and put it together into a book
0: yeah and that's I mean, that that is a very, very good resource for those of you who, when you're getting ready to make a session, you, you have that thought of what are we going to do this week, and you just sit there in front of your computer or with your notepad open and go, I have no idea. They'll be here in 30 minutes, and I have no idea what we're going to do. That's a great way to use that book, although I would say... I, and I think Matt would probably agree with me. You should probably think about it more than thirty minutes in advance.
1: Well, it'll work. With, it'll work with thirty minutes. But you know, yeah. If if you if you have more time uh, to give to it, um, you know, it's it's used by a lot of of professional um, adventure writers um, who you know are working uh, with the book, you know, for a longer period of time beforehand. But you know, sometimes you know you roll on a couple of tables and you'll you'll you you will get stuff that you can use. So
0: yeah, and that's. That's something else that I feel like has kind of been lost in in the modern uh, gaming is is kind of a sense of, of randomness. And like you said, at the beginning of the episode chaos, there's a lot of lot of control to modern games a lot of the dm knows exactly what's going to happen and i feel like a lot of these osr games are designed around not even the dm really knows what's going yeah, to happen yeah no it's here.
1: that's i mean that's actually you touched on something really interesting and that's um an interesting thing about you asking the same questions in advance because i think that that my answer to that was um that actually reveals an awful lot that you know because i actually don't think there would be a lot of um, dms who've started playing in the last you know 10 15 odd years who would say that the best gaming that the the best gaming is chaotic Mm -hmm. you know that that chaos would be a goal at the gaming table is something that yeah like you're saying it's not at all something that people think of as being Mm -hmm. um whereas i think a lot of the old schoolers yeah they would totally agree um that it's you know we're gonna we're gonna be whoever we want to be we're gonna go wherever we want to be, uh, the DM's like you know yeah I can stay ahead of that um, you know burn down every tavern <laughs> <you know? Yeah. laughs> and it's just you know it's
0: chaos it's, it's
1: chaos is chaos is fun.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and a lot of it a lot of it I feel like comes down to the people who taught me how to play because I did not I did not start with a module I didn't start with anything like that my first game session that I ran was in my friend's homebrew world and I had this idea sketched out for where the story was going to go and that's basically what happened uh now cool stuff happened along the way and there were twists and turns but the way i learned to play was basically you build out this this novel essentially only you leave the main characters blank because those will be filled by your players but i've also discovered that there's a lot of new players now who are approaching the game with that same wild mentality that the the early players approached with because they read all these stories of just nonsense that happens at the table on the internet and that's their that's their introduction to D, and they're like oh i want to do some random nonsense
1: yeah and good for them mm-hmm,
0: absolutely I'm all,
1: I'm, I'm all in favor of random nonsense
0: yeah the the internet has essentially become a a bigger international version of like the lunchroom where you ter- you turn to your friend and you're like, "Hey, you know what shit happened on Saturday? Let me tell you about this."
1: No, you're right on point there. You are not wrong. It's it's a worldwide lunchroom.
0: Absolutely, for for better or for worse. Kind of going off in a, a different direction here. Um, how did Frog God Games come about, and how did your involvement with them come about? Did, were you one of the founders? Uh, I, I just am not very familiar with that story. So,
1: sure, yeah, no, I was. I was one of the founders. Um, it was uh, 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 Chuck Wright who did layout, and Bill Webb who owned Necromancer Games, and Greg Vaughn who. Um, Uh, had done a lot of work with Paizo, you know, writing their, you know, core rule books for, uh, for Pathfinder. Um, but Greg had, oh, and me, um, and Greg had written a really big manuscript called Slumbering Czar that he had been, um, he was going to sell to Necromancer Games right when, um, the whole, uh, D20 thing folded and, and went under. And so, um, Greg, uh, agreed, uh, that, and so, so Greg threw that manuscript in, uh, Bill threw in the Necromancer Games, um, intellectual property, uh, I threw in the Swords and Wizardry game, and, um, you know, Chuck through in the layout skills, and we started a company. The first thing that we put out was um, *Slumbering Czar*, the that one, and um, then *Swords and Wizardry*. And we were mostly a Pathfinder publisher, at least that was you know sort of the larger share of what we did um, for a while. And then now um, we we still do some first edition Pathfinder because we got a lot of um, Pathfinder players who've been fans for a long time and they want to keep seeing the stuff in Pathfinder. So we'll uh, we'll keep you know, doing that for them uh, as long as there's enough to to make it commercially viable. Um, But mainly, you know, we're a a fifth edition publisher now and then the uh, and then the swords and wizardry side of things as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's another aspect of kind of gaming that I completely missed out on was there there seems to have been a time where at least among kind of the the in the no crowd, Pathfinder was the, the it game, the popular game, the one that everyone wanted to make content for, kind of around the time where D&D was going through a phase that's not overly popular with a lot of people, with 3.5 and 4E. Is that kind of accurate in, uh, in your,
1: your recollection of that time? Is that, or am I completely reading that situation wrong? You know what? I couldn't really tell you. Um, I, you know, I never played Pathfinder. I did I did play 3rd Edition. Uh, and 3.5 but uh, never actually played Pathfinder um, so that's kind of a world just a little bit outside of where I was I knew lots and lots of people um, you know who played Pathfinder and I was writing modules that were being converted into Pathfinder and since I'd played 3.5 I could talk intelligently with the people who were doing that conversion but I don't think I could really gauge uh, relative popularity levels of um, of Pathfinder in there because I, I was much more Uh, you know, again, you know, with the the OSR crew um, Mm -hmm. uh, are are sort of more my tribe than the Pathfinder players.
0: Yeah, basically... Like I said, I got into D&D in 2014-2015 and basically the the general sentiment that I got from people who played D&D was actual D&D kind of sucks right now. We'll see what this D&D next thing is, mm-hmm. but all the cool kids play Pathfinder.
1: I think that's accurate, yeah. That that was that was that was a really really widespread sentiment.
0: And then 5th Edition came in and just everything blew up.
1: Yeah, it did. I mean, they did a really phenomenal job at that. Um, I mean, it's still, um, you know, it's not, it's not my perfect or go-to game. I still like OD&D. But it stepped a lot further back toward the kind of play principles of OD&D than where the game had been before that with Pathfinder and 3.5. Um, so, you know, again, it's, you know, back, back toward chaos. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Now you mentioned kind of the uh, the the openness of of those old school uh, D&D type rules, the the one-e stuff as far as just, you know, doing whatever you want kind of within the, the realm of different kinds of fantasy. How easy or difficult is it to convert those fifth ed, or not fifth ed, those uh kind of one-e early D&D rules to other settings like outside of the realm of fantasy?
1: Well, okay, making the distinction here between original D&D and first edition, because Swords and, yep. swords and Wizardry is original D&D. Got gotcha. um, The first edition is first edition advanced D&D. Original, right. original D&D is um, infinitely flexible. Um, <laughs> it's virtually no effort whatsoever to take any genre... And turn it into something that works with original D and D in fifteen minutes or so. Um, gotcha. The now advanced uh, first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons is a way more complex system than original Dungeons and Dragons, and there I think there is uh, it, you know it can certainly be done. But I would say it's about as it would be a, about as hard to genre switch first edition D and D as it would be fifth edition D. So certainly not impossible, mm-hmm. but it would take some effort.
0: So now that we have the, uh, the the Swords and Wizardry box set Kickstarter is is done, uh, seems like everything uh, is fully funded. What's next for you guys?
1: Well, on the Swords and Wizardry side, it's going to be coming out with some um, call them supplements, uh, you know, b- books that are. Maybe a bit like zines, um, but but all, all produced in one place. That would uh, will give you know some optional house rules. Um, you know, some playing tips, things like that. And then also um, there'll be some of them that are monsters and the monsters may be mixed in. Um, so producing those and then producing some modules that are specifically designed for swords and wizardry uh, is what we're doing on the swords and wizardry side. Um, on the uh, And then we're also continuing to do swords and wizardry for the Lost Lands campaign as well. Um, so in the Lost Lands campaign, I think the next thing that's coming out is... Uh, uh, the sort of Mesoamerican-based part of the campaign, um, we we did uh, the big world book um, that's sort of the reference on the whole world. Now we're zeroing in again uh, to one of the areas, and for this one, um, uh, Tekoxo is is the name of it. Um, so it's gonna it's gonna be something that has that flavor to it. Um, we've got another monster book uh, on the horizon. We have a book of. Um, Sort of uh, alchemy and magic items and things like that that's going to be coming out. So there's there's an, an awful lot of stuff on the on the horizon. Um, so you know a lot of good stuff to look forward to.
0: And I know with uh, this pandemic that we're we're going <laughs> through right now, there's a lot of events uh, being canceled. But assuming this all kind of blows over within the next couple months, uh, what kind of events are you guys looking at being a part of? Just coming down the line.
1: Well, I think the next one that we've got lined up is uh, North Texas RPG Con, uh, which is in June. So it's in a little bit of the risk area, um, you know, depending on uh, how this whole thing goes. It's not, mm-hmm. people aren't really clear about whether things are going to be cleared up by June or whether it's more likely to be August. Um, but uh, that would be the, the the next one. And so for there, you know, we, use, we do... Um, highly contagious games of like you know 15 15 to 20 people all crowded into one uh, one area playing so we may uh might think about reducing the the number of people in the parties and putting them a little further away from each other maybe uh but uh, you know that's that's how both bill webb and i run games is large numbers um I, I tend to like mine to top out at no no more than twenty. Um, he goes a little bit more than that, but uh, um, so that's the kind of games that we run. And then of course um, we've got a bunch of other people who um, who also run games uh, at this that or the other con. Because the thing is that the games that Bill and I run are um, your your character goes on from it's it's a just large mega dungeon type um, things, and so people will run their character starting with a second-level character, and then they keep it. They go to the next game that that I'm running at a convention. It's going to be a different game, different group of people. Some of them will have characters that have been in the games before, and they've kept their magic items. They keep their experience. They start to level up. Um, And it's been going long enough that now at conventions, I have to have a special off-grid game for the high-level characters only. (laughs) Because they, and I don't let those guys bring, you know, a ninth level character into a game that's being run with second level characters because then mm-hmm. it's totally boring because the ninth level character is doing all of the work. So, um, mm-hmm. so that's that's sort of how that goes at conventions. And then we, uh, we always go to Game Con. Um, uh, I mean, I assume that we're going to be going to Gary Con next year. Um, we go to TotalCon. That, that's one that we recently added to the group of cons we go to. We really like that one. It's in Boston. Um, highly recommended. Um, uh, we may go to ReaperCon. I'm not sure. Um, we sort of we sort of half asset at ReaperCon. We don't. Uh, we, we run games. We've got sort of a, a smaller sales thing, smaller games thing. Just do it. You know, it's fun to be at. I think that's it we we probably do some others I know that sometimes we go to LongCon, con um, and I'm probably forgetting one or two that the guys will slap me around for forgetting so apologies to all the conventions that I forgot in that list do you guys generally have a
0: a, a presence at, at Gen Con, or is that one that you've kind of let go in in recent years as it's gotten out of hand? We
1: we specifically don't go to Gen Con. Um, gotcha. It's not. Um, you know, I think some vendors do very well at Gen Con um, just based on the way that they do things. Others don't do well at Gen Con. Um, you know, we haven't gotten enough sales uh, the the one time that we were at Gen Con to really justify it. Um, you know, most of us have either been to Gen Con so many times that we don't need to go or have never gone, like in my case, because we've got no interest in being in crowds that large, so. I am I am really
0: hoping that North Texas still happens, because I would love to actually make, uh, I'd love to actually make it to that convention this year, because so many people that I've talked to on the show go to that convention, and... I would love to, to meet all of you guys in person.
1: Well, the first person that you meet there will almost certainly improve your 76,000 Gygax number. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much no matter who it is. So, yeah, we are
0: we are kind of running low on time right now, Matt. So basically what I'm going to do right now is turn over the rest of the episode to you. Uh, anything you want to promote, anything like that um,
1: that you want to shout out, uh, go ahead. The floor is yours. Um, well, okay. So let me think. We are running a Kickstarter right now called Mitterlands. Um, which uh, people can take a look at Decide whether they like it or not But Glenn Seal Who is the guy who uh, Invented the whole Midderlands uh, And did the cartography and, uh, and all of that Is a really super talented guy Yeah I think um, That's the only thing That we've got That we're selling right now Take a look We'll have an Indiegogo Up in a couple of days um, For the Book of Taverns 1 uh, We've got three of these Little books of taverns They're small They're like two taverns each The way I put it is Is one to burn And one to hide out in afterwards um, so, but uh, yeah, no, but I'm not much of a salesperson, so I'll just leave it at that. You know, the, the stuff that we've actively got selling right now, and we really hope to see everybody, uh, you know, given that uh, GaryCon got uh, canceled, I hope to see everybody on the far side of the, of the pandemic and, and see some people at conventions.
0: Uh, what day does that Indiegogo launch? Uh,
1: I'm not sure. It's going to be, um, I mean, we're recording this on Monday night. It might be as yep. early as tomorrow uh, mm-hmm. or the next day. So Tuesday or Wednesday.
0: Gotcha. So as you guys are hearing this, that Indiegogo is open, uh, please contribute to it because this will go up on uh, Saturday the 21st. Okay. All right. Well, Matt... Once again, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. It, it's been a long time coming. Like I said, I've I feel like I've talked to almost everyone, except I think <laughs> except for Bill.
1: Well, you know, we can we can certainly put him on a show. He has technical difficulties all the time, but not the Absolutely. not not the strongest technology adopter ever. Bill, he's not. <laughs> it's just not. <laughs>
0: We've had a few of those on the show. I actually had to – when I interviewed uh, Larry Elmore, uh, we had to set it up so that he could call in uh-huh. just just to make it as simple as possible. Uh, but, again, it was a fantastic show because it's,
1: it's Larry Elmore. Oh, yeah. he's an, He'll talk forever. He's an awesome, awesome
0: guy. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. Uh, There is no guest booked for next week. There will still be a show. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do uh, two different things. One is I will do a full review of either the Tome of Adventure Design, which we talked about today or I will do a full review of Savage World Adventurers Edition. And then the rest of the time, I will fill by talking about a gaming-related topic to be determined later. We've got some great guests lined up for April. Uh, I'm very excited about uh, bringing Levi Combs back on the show. Oh, Levi's awesome. Levi is one of the biggest supporters of the show. He's a fantastic guy, and uh, he's got that... That new, insane book with the giant kaiju that he's kickstarting now, and so I'm unbelievably stoked to talk with him about that. So that will do it for this episode, guys. Uh, Once again, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am grateful that you decided to roll your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.